Blog Talk Radio. Good afternoon and good evening, my fellow Liberty lovers, wherever and whenever you're tuning in from. I'm Amber S., bringing you a vision of what living a life of freedom can look like physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, and everyday life. And as always, this show is brought to you by Living with Freedom Ministries, an unincorporated private ministerial association where I help people discover and fulfill their God-given purpose specifically through the creation of their own private member or private ministry association. As always, also, I love to start the day with a couple, I consider them fun. Um, I like to start out with a fun national day of the, you know, like national holiday of the day. Then I also like to start out with a word of the day or a word of the week by um, Black's Law Dictionary. So we're going to start with the holiday of the day. So September 5th is a day where we kind of remember and recognize the anniversary of when the first Continental Congress started meeting. So they met in 1774 from September 5th through October 22nd. And in honor of that, especially with all the things going on in this world as we know it today, I feel like no time is better than now to touch on these topics. I will say this show I have probably done more research for than any of our previous shows to date, and I'm happy doing it. I am loving learning the true history from the founders and framers and really getting to see a better idea of what, you know, what was really going on at the time, not just what we were taught in our our propaganda history books, in our propaganda schools, our government schools. Um, Anyone who's homeschooled should hopefully be lucky enough to get a much better education in terms of our founding and framing and where we came from than any of us who had the unfortunate um, experience of public school. So some of the things that I'm going to be touching on surrounding this first Continental Congress uh, gathering, uh, group of meetings, is really a breakdown of what led to it and also starting to walk through what it was all about. I mean, knowing they met on the daily from September 5th through October 22nd, and and the fact that there were 56, you know, delegates in a, in a room all day discussing these things, they had to have covered a lot of ground, right? So that's kind of where I'm focusing my curiosity and realizing there's so much rich history on this topic. Today, I really want to just focus on introducing what led up to the starting of 
the first Continental Congress. And over the coming weeks, at least one of our segments I want to dedicate to covering sort of the topics of the week in terms of each week that the delegation met, um, just to kind of give a highlight and a continued idea and perspective of what they were going through over the next month and a half. Um, I realize dedicating every show for the next month and a half in its entirety would be extremely overwhelming for you as a listener, as well as for me, um, the show host. So we're only going to do a portion of each show from here on out. Today is just a hard-hitting highlight of of this event. Um, and I shouldn't say um, and I also want to, because we're talking about the First Continental Congress, the question does come up, what does Congress even mean? Because the way they're using it here is actually a little bit different than the Congress that we're used to hearing, you know, the Congress of the United States or, um, you know, the United States Congress, things like that. So I went to Black's Law Dictionary. This is segueing, segueing. I just made up that word, I think. Um, this segues <laughs> directly into our word of the day, Congress. So the basic meaning of the word Congress is a formal meeting of delegates or representatives. I also took some notes. I primarily got my notes for today from two books thus far. The first one was called, um, and I'm looking at ebooks, so Kindle on Amazon right now. The first book is one that you're supposed to be able to read in like 30 minutes. I agree. It was a pretty easy read. <clears throat> and so I also don't put as much weight on what it says because when you summarize something as big as the First Continental Congress into 30 minutes, man, you're going to be missing a lot, if not misinterpreting a lot too. So anyways, I thought it was really interesting that they talked about um, Congress is being, oh, let me see if I can find it again. Oh, I wrote it down. That's what it was. <laughs> I put it down in my written notes, not my typed notes. Uh, let's see. Oh, goodness. Maybe I didn't. All right. Well, they defined it in a very similar way. Um, and really, it was around the topics of politics, economics, and sort of like just the state of, of the colonies and the state of the community. I'm obviously very poorly summarizing what the book said, um, but it was, it was of the same essence, a group of delegates or people coming together for a common cause to, you know, find resolutions for issues, et cetera, et cetera. I like Black's Law Dictionary definition a little bit better. It's a little more refined. <clears throat> it does go on to say, so I don't want to skimp out on its full definition listed here. So again, the first part of the definition for Congress is formal meeting of delegates or representatives, which is what we were talking about, are talking about with the first Continental Congress. It's a formal meeting of delegates from each of the colonies to you know, go over these grievances and try to find resolutions. The rest of the definition says, the Congress of the United States was created by Article I, Section 1 of the Constitution 
adopted by the Constitutional Convention on September 17, 1787. That's a lot of 17s and 7s. Providing that, quote, all legislative powers herein granted shall be vested in a Congress of the United States, which shall consist of a Senate and House of Representatives. The first Congress, now, end quote, the first Congress under the Constitution met on March 4th, 1789. So two years, actually a year and a half later, after um, it was adopted by the Constitutional Convention. Um, it met in the Federal Hall in New York City. The membership then consisted of 20 senators and 59 representatives. So that is our word of the day, Congress. And I, I like to remind us that, hmm, how do I word it? <laughs> the reason I'm reminding us of the tr the full definition of Congress is <clears throat> you could have a Congress without it being the Congress of the United States of America. Like the word existed before the Congress of the United States of America existed. And I think that is really important because it was, you know, just a, a random, not random, but a group of delegates that chose to come together. They weren't, like, hired. They weren't voted in in this formal thing that we have today. It was much more voluntary, and they voluntarily did it because they felt the obligation to step up and make this change happen. So something else I wanted to make note of is... This first Continental Congress did not come about out of the blue. Most of us know that it was spurred by something or some things that were happening in the colonies by the British. Namely, the most popular one that everyone recognizes, the Boston Tea Party, which was a result of a couple things. It mostly stemmed from taxation without representation. It had a lot to do with um, British, you know, forcing taxes on, you know, things like tea and these other goods. And the colonists had had enough. So I'm going to go back, going back to the importance of the First Continental Congress my baby professor books, again, not the most credible source. A lot of this also started by the coercive acts. <clears throat> so there was the Tea Act, which led to the Boston Tea Party, and then there were also these coercive acts. So the Tea Tax or the ta or the Tea Act, the tax on tea, happened in 1773. And what it was is that it let the British East India Company have the right to sell tea without paying the same taxes as the colonists. And if the colonists were really just an extension of England proper or Great Britain proper, why were they being taxed differently and more than, you know, the mainland, the homeland? So thus the Tea Party. These coercive acts 
as named by the British, were also known by the colonists as the Intolerable Acts. <clears throat> These Intolerable Acts included a couple different acts. I'm going to grab my audio thing here for a second and move that over so I can keep reading. <coughs> Excuse me. Intolerable Act Number 1 was the Boston Port Act. What happened was it closed the ports of Boston, coming in and going out, until the colonists had paid back for the cargo of tea. So until they had paid back the cost of the tea that they destroyed during the Boston Tea Party. Intolerable Act Number 2 was the Massachusetts Government Act. This basically circumvented or overruled the 1691 charter that was given to the colonists that basically said they could self-govern with their own colonial legislature. And thus it let the British military rule in Massachusetts. <coughs> Sorry, I have like something in my throat today, so I do apologize. I have lozenges here and water and tea and none of it seems to be helping. Um, anyways, Intolerable Act Number 3, Administration of Justice, and I wanted to pull up the exact verbiage on this, so give me one moment as I scroll back in my other ebook. Um, do Oh, you know what? We can do a search function. Search functions are awesome. <laughs> All right. Um, administrative, we're going to do this together because teamwork makes the dream work, right? Administrative, let's see, Justice Act. There we go. <clears throat> so what it was is it increased the power of the Massachusetts governor, allowing him, him to prevent trials of royal officials in the Bay Colony. I am reading verbatim from the second book, which is the story of the First Continental Congress by C.L. Gammon, I believe is how you say it. <clears throat> And it also said that the governor could move these trials to other colonies um, or even all the way to England, which really was not giving people fair trials. It was not give, allowing them to have a jury of their peers. <clears throat> it was really a way to avoid justice. And the biggest problem is that particularly with the, um, the British officers and soldiers that were being charged with things, well, if they're part of the British government and then they're being taken to court that's ruled by the British government, there's a lot of bias and um, <clears throat> conflict of interest there. And of course, they're going to be ruling on the side of these British soldiers and officials because they're part of the same team. So it was really insulting it was very impartial just all over really really crappy um, a couple of the other ones that i had not heard of were the quartering act i, I guess i had heard about this one but <clears throat> not the full extent of it so the quartering act had to do with where the british soldiers could could be quartered or could be like housed and the understanding from the colonists was that the quartering act allowed the governor to quarter or house the soldiers in people's private homes 
and up to that point that had really only been a a possible issue during times of war, but this kind of made it an any time kind of thing. <clears throat> Either way, it's not really right in my opinion. <laughs> it's, you know, invading people's privacy to the fullest extent. Uh, the other act that I really want to touch on is the Quebec Act. So these last two, the Quartering Act and the Quebec Quebec Act, that's a tongue twister, <clears throat> both happened in June of 1774. The first happened on June 2nd, and the second one happened June 22nd. So really, the uh, the colonists were just getting slammed with act after act after act. I mean, the Boston Port Act happened March 31st. The Massachusetts government, May 2nd. The Administration of Justice Act, May 20th. So those two happened the same day. So from March 30th, <clears throat> oh my goodness, I might have to mute myself and get some water, to June 22nd is a very, very short time to have one, two, three, four, five acts imposed on them. So that alone would be plenty of reason for being upset by anybody. I really want to hit home, though, that these were not the only things that happened. Uh, prior to that, there was so much. I mean, the colonists themselves were tr being treated like secondhand citizens of England. They were not being treated as equals to other Englishmen. <clears throat> and a list of the promised rights and protections as declared by the colonists. They called it the immemorial rights of Englishmen. <clears throat> All right, I am going to mute myself. I apologize. One moment here. All right, hopefully that nonsense stops. We are going to say a little prayer of clearing and just healing from whatever nonsense that is. So anyways, these promised rights and protections the colonists had documented included the protection of life, the protection of property, having fair trials, um, having judgment by a jury of their peers, having local self-government, having the freedom of movement, um, even the freedom of occupation and trade. You realize that several of these acts would impose a really difficult experience for the entrepreneurs of of the colonies. Um, not being able to trade and import export, it was it was a hot mess. And the last one was representation in Parliament. We have heard time and again this whole taxation without representation. But I don't think we ever fully and truly understand what it means. At this time, the colonists who were living in what we now know to be, what we now have as the United States of America, the colonists who were living on the continent of North America did not have a duly elected representative for them in Parliament. And so this virtual representation 
was laughable. It was comedic because unless you really lived there and experienced life there and, you know, were pursuing your God-given purpose there, you really had no clue what the struggles of the colonists were, what life was like, what their needs were, et cetera, et cetera. And so there really was no representation. And so for Britain to start implementing these taxes on imports and exports, and then later, what was the name of that one? Um, (laughs) The Stamp Act. Prime Minister George Grenville, hopefully I'm pronouncing that right, sought to impose a direct tax on the colonies because of the cost of the French and Indian War. Um, Up to this point, the colonies had never had a direct tax imposed on them. It was always indirect through, like I said, imports and exports, things like that. Now, I want to add a side note. The little bit that I know about the French and Indian War, as well as just this whole thing about, you know, the Indians, or as we call them now, Native Americans, versus the settlers, you know, the Americans, the British coming in, I learned kind of the other side of it from someone whose ancestry actually lived it, not just through griping and, you know, fat, um, exaggerated stories. I'm not going to say they were false, you know, in in their entirety, but I do know that people sometimes tend to elaborate more than the truth when they feel passionate about something. So anyways, I was attending this conference um, last year, March, and one of the guest speakers at this conference was basically the historian, the oral history um, person of one of the local Native American tribes. And he shared some really, really amazing and fascinating information that brought more perspective on the experience of Native Americans, especially in the Midwest. And when I say the Midwest, in my mind, I do kind of extend to Ohio when I include that. Maybe I'm doing that improperly, but that's my perception. So anyways, what he shared was that when the first French fur traders, that's a lot of F words that aren't even swearing, (laughs) when they were first coming across the Great Lakes to trade, they were actually being very, very peaceful and respectful of the Native Americans, of the Indians who were living there at the time in Wisconsin and these other Great Lakes states. They were very respectful and mindful that they live here. We're just traveling through and we just want to trade um, an exchange. That's all we want to do. We want to be peaceful. We want to exchange. We don't mean any harm. That's kind of the vibe that was going on between the French settlers and fur traders and the Native Americans who lived there at the time. And they had a really solid relationship. They would trade different things back and forth and had a positive relationship. It was really the British influence that was more about conquering. And we see this all throughout these acts, these intolerable acts, is this 
sense of conquering, of control, of keeping the colonists and the colonies in their proper place. Now, I know some people would make the argument otherwise that the colonists just didn't understand. But when you realize that Britain was very largely still functioning on the mercantile theory of trade, which the definition of that is is really the wealth that that wealth is measured by the amount of precious metals that a nation has, not on the manufacture and trade of goods. <clears throat> so Britain, as, as America was concerned, could be really profitable in terms of collecting coinage. The problem was America, or the colonies that make up America, were more concerned about getting the best bang for their buck and focusing on trade and the best value for their money, which was then losing Britain money because the colonies were not trading or, or purchasing from the British East India Company for, um, you know, things like sugar, molasses, these sweet items that were then used to make rum and other stuff. They were using, um, you know, they were trading with the French, with German and Dutch companies that were in the West Indies as well. So the Britain government didn't like it, and they tried to impose a tax on any foreign trade. They were trying to squeeze the American colonies into forcing them to use their trading company for their resources. And at some point they even, so the tax, I'm going to rewind for a second, the tax included um, six pence per gallon tax on molasses imported from these foreign sources. And really that was going to tank the economy. And sadly, the British didn't see it or chose to neglect it or did it intentionally. But at some point, they even attempted to offer to cut that tax in half and just charge three, three pence per gallon. A lot of these tax issues were less about the tax itself or the reason for the tax and more about the fact that it was going through Parliament and not the colonial legislature processes. It was totally circumventing and really going over the heads of colonial legislature, thus deeming them virtually irrelevant. Um, Yeah, all of this was piling on. Um, There was also the revival of the Navigation Act. And after this one, because it's really, really short, then I'll cut to a commercial and give you guys a break because we just covered a whole heck of a lot. And this is still just the tip of the iceberg. I'm still not covering in our show today the entire scope of what was happening that led up to the First Continental Congress. I'm just hitting like the really big ones that are are more well known. So anyways, the Navigation Acts... um, Again, had to do, they included the Sugar and Molasses Act. Um, This is where Parliament had even reduced that tax. 
but now they wanted to fully enforce it. Whereas before, they knew that the colonies were, you know, still trading, but they just, it was so much work and effort to enforce it. They're just like, whatever, we're still making money from it. I guess we'll let it slide. Although they still never repealed it either. But now, now that they wanted to fully enforce it, ooh, ooh, then they let naval commanders use what's called writs of assistance. And thankfully, I, I looked this up and I verified the definition. What writs of assistance are is general warrants that allow the search of persons and homes for unspecified items. So they're basically like customs agents, but they can come in your home. They can search your body just by walking down the street. They could just say that they suspected something and do an illegal or, I guess, unlawful, maybe that's the right word, search and seizure for unspecified items. So in today's terms, Maybe maybe using writs of assistance, they found that you were carrying too much, um, you know, ammunition on your person or in your vehicle. Um, it's just totally bogus what power these writs of assistance gave them. So anyways, they brought that back and they brought it back full force, which then led the colonists to do semi-secret trades using smugglers and if I recall right and I did not have a chance to verify I believe this is where some of the founders and framers part of things at this time incorporated their own like stamp of of items and that's where the skull and crossbones actually comes from it does not really originate at least not largely from pirates as we think now. I have a feeling, and I need to verify this, if any of you listeners can confirm this or know more about it, I would love to, you know, to get some input on that. But my theory, knowing what was going on between Britain and the colonies at the time, is that Britain dubbed these smugglers and the colonists pirates because they were going around the British, you know, rule and and power. And so they wanted to give the skull and crossbones a bad name. Whereas if we start to look at the real history, like the skull and crossbones actually have a really unique and empowering and inspiring history. Um, maybe I'll pull that up for for next week's show a little bit more of the history of that, but definitely if you're not aware of the Skull and Crossbones and its history in America, definitely check it out. It's fascinating. It kind of amps you up a little bit about the level of of unique rebellion that these, these uh, colonists had. So with that being said, we are going to cut to a commercial and we will come back and share a little bit more.
Looking for something different? Looking for something fun? Join Dan every Monday on the Freedomizer Network, 9 to 10.30 Pacific, noon to 1.30 Eastern, for Common Sense with the Educated Redneck, Dan Ellison. The show about everything and nothing at all. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, wherever and whenever you're tuning in from, my fellow Liberty Lovers. This is Amber S. from Living with Freedom Ministries, reminding you to tune in on Tuesdays at 2 p.m. Central, noon Pacific Time, for the Living with Freedom show, where we'll embrace what living with freedom can look like physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, and in everyday life. That's 2 p.m. Central, noon Pacific, here on Freedomizer Radio. We talk a lot about the kingdom here, and we talk a lot about what most churches are afraid to talk about or don't even know to talk about, which is what the first century church was really doing. But just talking about it is not enough. We encourage everybody to join us uh, in their local neighborhoods, in their local communities, to find out more about what they can do to seek the kingdom of God and His righteousness gather with others who are already starting this road or starting to turn around and do things differently. Join us on thelivingnetwork.org or at hisholychurch.org. Go to the network links or go to preparingyou.com. Join the network there. It's all the same. And we'll try to hook you up with people in your local area. They will not be perfect. They don't walk on water. They are not necessarily saints. But they are talking about seeking the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And join us on Facebook. Facebook.com, His Holy Church, all one word. Join us there. We'll give you updates so you can start doing some studying and thinking about these things and start looking into these things for yourselves. But it's just not enough to sit and listen or to talk about or to say. You must become a doer of the word. Please check out the Barefoot is Legal radio show right here on Saturdays, 1.30 p.m. to 3 p.m. Eastern Time, that is 10.30 a.m. to noon Pacific Time, as we show you all about your barefoot rights and living a barefoot lifestyle. And for more information about the 501c3 nonprofit Barefoot is Legal, please check out barefootislegal.org. Hello, Freedomizers. I am Broccoli Man. When I am not fighting crime, I listen to the Proof Negative radio show. I am the Wire Ripper. Not only do I forbid you to listen to Freedomizer Radio and the Proof Negative radio show, I am going to demand you wear a mask and get your naked body scan. We need to protect the One World Government. You getting the real information hurts a crime syndicate. Do not listen to Proof Negative. You must now disrobe this instant so I can check your person for a constitutional cash money. Anyway, listen to Proof Negative on Freedomizer Radio. Weeknights 9 p.m. to midnight Eastern. 6 to 9 p.m. Pacific Time. Freedomizerradio.com All right, and we are back. One of the first things that I 
really recommend as we continue to dive into this is don't take my word for any of this. I'm just sharing tiny, tiny little snippets of what was going on and who was involved. I urge you all to, if you haven't already, I should say that, if you haven't, as an adult, dug into some of these things, there's actually quite a few books that are free on Amazon, um, like on the Kindle for eBooks. If you use the Kindle Unlimited, there's a lot for free. So some books that I definitely recommend starting with would obviously be just getting a copy. You can even find this for free online, you guys. Finding and reading a copy of the Constitution of the United States of America. First and foremost, please read that. I realize that some of the stuff they have in there about the delegations, you know, and all the different things about like the House and the legislature and the executive branch. One, it can be a little bit dry. Two, it can be a little bit confusing. Something I suggest that can kind of help is to start to map out what these different things that they're referencing are and how they work. Um, someone who really understands this, I'm going to challenge you. For the sake of education and sharing easy to digest bits of information, if you really have a solid grasp of how our government system from the smallest local, actually the biggest local, I'll, I'll, put, I'll change that, from the biggest local things all the way down to the president, if you understand how these different positions and um, organizations, for lack of a better word, work, will you please consider, especially if you have any modicum of tech savviness in, in any fiber of your bones, I would love to see an interactive graphic um, table chart map of how all these things work. I would love to see a map of from local village or city uh, board and school board and county board and even the different kinds of county boards because you can be on the um, Department like of Health and Human Services board and just the village uh, or the county commission. Like there's so many different things. If you have a solid grasp of this, I would love to see not only a graphic of what the positions are, but how they get their position. Most of them are obviously going to be by election. Um, so how they get their position, when the voting happens for their position, um, a description of what their job actually includes, what it's supposed to include, not what we see today with the corruption and the overrun of stuff, what their position is supposed to include, and also maybe what it's not supposed to include. I would love to be able to see something like this where you can click on one role, like village president, and see what they are and are not supposed to do. Um, obviously, this may vary by state, but in general terms. So if anyone has a resource like that or 
is interested in designing one, hit me up and let's let's make this happen. Because I am so tired of, even including myself, I'm going to out myself right now in full transparency. I still struggle understanding, like, yes, I know there's three branches of government. I get that part. But understanding how each one is, is made or, like, what each one is made up of, its components, what it's actually supposed to do, and how it influences our lives. And maybe it's just because I'm a really visual learner, but having a map of, of this whole thing and what it looks like would be so stinking awesome. So that's a side tangent. Um, getting back to the first, what led up to the first meeting of the first Continental Congress, I wanted to share a bit more. Um, by, let's see, by 1720, so this goes back a few decades, most of what I had shared before was happening in 1772 to 1774 in the years and months literally leading up to the September 5th, first day of the Continental Congress. But even back in 1720, the British royalty, the king at the time, wanted to step back from having so much power and influence and kind of just letting Parliament, you know, take care of stuff. So kind of seems like he just wanted to live the good life and, oh, you go take care of this Parliament. I'll let you deal with this. And so Great Britain at that time became a parliamentary state. When this happened, King George I, who, who kind of was there when this all happened, this transition, he gave a warning to specifically Massachusetts that its misbehavior would be brought to the notice of Parliament. So it's, it's been a long time coming at this point. From 1720 and earlier, all the way to 1774, there were literal decades of abuse and grievances that the colonists were just getting sick and tired of. They tried. They wanted to be loyal colonists of Britain. And when you get stepped on so many times, you just finally get fed up. So anyways, something else that Parliament was doing was after the 1720 thing, they started to pass laws to regulate colonial currency, and I think this is also tied to that skull and crossbones that I was mentioning before. I want to say that some of the currency the colonies were starting to make for themselves to kind of stick it to the British government was the skull and crossbones uh, stamped currency. They were also trying to pass naturalization laws. They even set up post offices and... They knowingly disregarded the colonial legislatures, which literally left the colonists with no representation in British legislature, which also means they had no way to redress or, or for redress for the abuses and their grievances. So they were, there's, at this point, we'll put it this way, at this point, the British government really has no excuse to turn a blind eye to why the American colonists could possibly want to remove themselves from under the thumb of the British. 
everything they did to try to, quote unquote, bring them back into the fold was really just pushing them farther away. And Noah was not quoting any specific, anyone specifically, but we know that um, people who, you know, go astray from their faith or from their family or whatever are said to have gone astray, you know, so, and, and just need to be brought back into the fold. So I was saying that very mockingly. <laughs> um, the one thing that the king, that King George did, King George the first did, that I thought was interesting, comical, but also extremely frustrating for the colonists. And most people don't know this. I actually just learned this while I was studying for our, our show today is that to remain relevant, the king did continue to veto colonial legislation. So one of the examples of his vetoing was against a a Virginia statute that would limit the slave trade. And he vetoed it because slaving was profitable for the royal court. I want you guys to hear that again. The king vetoed a Virginia statute that would limit the slave trade. You guys, Virginia and the colonists were trying to end slavery before the United States of America ever became a thing. So to call the founding fathers white slave owners, our founding fathers and framers, white slave owners who, you know, wanted nothing more than to continue their their path in life, being slave owners and all this stuff, is a total farce. So I want you guys to be able to pull this up, pull these facts up, and be able to show others who don't know the truth. Be like, um, no, America has always been largely anti-slavery. It was mostly just for profit for the crown that it didn't get, you know, abolished right from the get-go. Um and also, you know, crown um, loyalists. So that's a whole thing. I could go on a whole different tangent of that, Um, but I won't. (laughs) Another of the grievances was that the Anglican Church was trying to set up an Anglican bishop in the colonies, which likely would have led to a national church and thus limiting other denominations in the New World And that was largely a reason that the colonists were happy in the New World doing their thing, because they did not want a national church. Yes, they were all largely Protestant in in denomination, but out of all the Protestant denominations that exist, it was quite varied, and they wanted the freedom and, and liberty to worship as they deemed fit, as they desired, as they were led. Um, I want to bring something up. So as we're talking about some of these other events leading up to this first Continental Congress was the Boston Massacre. And another little known fact that I find truly heart-wrenching that we don't know and don't honor this man because it it truly changes the course of how we live out our history if we knew this fact. 
at the Boston Massacre, Crispus Attucks, a free black man and former slave. He was business owner, if I remember right. Like, he was a free black man doing his thing. He was the first to die at the Boston Massacre. He was the first martyr of the American Revolution. And if I remember right from hearing Chris Ann Hall talk about him, his funeral procession, like, literally shut down the streets of Boston to honor and celebrate him. Like, I get choked up thinking about it. Like, how angry I am that we don't know his name. Whew. All right. Let's bring it down a notch because we got more to cover. <laughs> I will say, if that does not make you angry that you didn't know about Christmas Addicts being the first person to die in the American Revolution and the fact that he was a free black man and he died, I don't know what's going to rally you up. So just know that there are a lot, a lot of people that we should be learning about and we don't even know their names. In fact, most of the um, delegates at this First Continental Congress, I read them when we had our very first call or our very first show on July 4th. I read the name of the 56 delegates that were at the First Continental Congress. If I remember it, I think that's what the list was. But through this, I do plan on highlighting a lot more of these unsung heroes because they deserve our attention. So a couple of fun facts. We're going to switch and transition over to more about the beginnings of the First Continental Congress. So first the fun fact, in 1773, there was already this Committees of Correspondence, which was basically letter writing to inform the people and the colonies of what was happening with the British government. And so in 1773, these committees of correspondence, they expanded to nine more colonies. And also, fun fact, Patrick Henry and Thomas Jefferson oversaw the one in Virginia. So they were writing letters and informing the people of what was going on. Um, the Another fun fact about this co- committees of correspondence is that the First Continental Congress was actually made up of many of the men who were writing letters. And I just find that super fascinating. Like they put their money where their mouth is. They knew they had targets on their backs. And realizing this, before they even stepped foot in Philadelphia for the first Continental Congress, they actually already had a target on their backs by writing these letters, these correspondences. You guys, these men of God, these virtuous men of God, were willing to put their life and their families' lives on the line, fighting for this liberty and this freedom and this independence. That's what this is all about, is remembering and recognizing it. So 
when we sit back and ask, what can I do, what can I do, write letters, write letters, letters to your senators, to your legislatures, to your family members. I mean, you know, don't bombard them. Well, maybe bombard them. It depends on your personality, but share truth with a capital T with them. Share with love and compassion and caring in your heart and use one of the um, the techniques that I like to use. It's originally from marketing. And while, yes, it's a great tool for marketing, unfortunately, a lot of people do manipulate it. I'm asking us to take back this tool, this technique, as something that can bring us together. As you're writing these letters, use what I call, not what I call, um, what's called the feel, felt, found method. Create connection by recognizing how the person you're talking to feels. And literally call it out like, you know, I understand how you feel or, or, you know, where your heart is. Whatever words you would use and use reflective language. If they're saying my heart just isn't in this or something, whatever, use that language to mirror them. So recognize and acknowledge how they're feeling. And then acknowledge that at some point you kind of felt the same way, even if they didn't, even if you never felt exactly the same way. Like you can, most people can at least empathize enough to understand where the other person is coming from in their perspective. Even if you know it's flawed, at some point you had some, you can have some level of empathy. So recognize and let them know that, you know, you used to feel the same way. And then share what you found, what truth you found that changed your mind. So if someone is used to, and I'm, I'm going to use this as a really unrelated example, if someone is used to using Tylenol or aspirin for a headache, um, because that's what their doctor told them, and you could be like, you know, I used to feel the same way. I wanted to listen to my doctor. Um I, you know, I felt the same way. And so you can kind of combine them, of course. And then you switch and be like, and then I found out that Tylenol has things that, you know, um, oh gosh, I can't even remember what it is now. But anyways, um, can really harm our kidneys and our detox systems in our body. Or that aspirin can really thin our blood, blah, blah, blah. Um. I found that there are things from nature that do these things that these chemical products are actually based on that our bodies can handle easier without, you know, the negative stuff. So we use feel, felt, found. You know, I get how you feel. I used to feel the same way. And then I found out, blah, blah, blah. It's a way of creating connection so that the listener can build that know, like, and trust factor. They can get to know you a little bit by understanding what you, you know, felt too. Typically, they will start to like you better because you recognize how they felt and you shared something that you felt too. And then they will get to trust you because you shared a truth that you learned sharing it from your heart. This does not have to be a battle and in a thing of aggression, you guys. 
if that's one thing that I am most passionate about, it's communicating from the heart and being able to still be passionate and fired up and also recognizing that there's another person on the other end of that message that has thoughts and feelings too. And yes, their thoughts and feelings may be based on a false bit of information, but that does not negate their feelings. All we need to do is lovingly and kindly share the real truth with them in a way that we can connect and keep that door of open-mindedness open. Um, So that took a little bit longer, but that actually leads us really well into leading up to the very first day of the first Continental Congress. So on that note, I'm going to stop a couple seconds early here so we can cut to a commercial break. My first commercial of this second commercial break is the How to Win in Court Without a Lawyer course. I highly, highly recommend taking this course. If you are a freedom fighter, a liberty lover, or an advocate of anything that's worthy, we know that the court systems are so seriously messed up. And what better way then to truly defend and uphold and assert our rights than to learn how to do it for ourselves? No more do we have to rely on an attorney who may or may not actually care about you, who may or may not actually fight for you to do their job. You can learn how to do it for yourself. So Dr. Frederick Graves put this course together for us to do just that. So if you're interested in taking this course, please go to howtowinincourt.com, question mark, refer code, equals, S as in Sam, H. 0024. One of these days, I will remember to create a short link for that. That's a little bit easier than um, adding in these different symbols. <laughs> All right. On to the rest of the commercials. Hey, everyone. Come check out the Proof Negative Radio Show here on FreedomizerRadio.com. Monday through Thursday, 9 p.m. to midnight Eastern, 6 p.m. to 9 p.m. on the Pacific Coast as we fight the New World Order and rock the health freedom world together. Please check out the Barefoot is Legal radio show right here on Saturdays, 1.30 p.m. to 3 p.m. Eastern Time, that is 10.30 a.m. to noon Pacific Time, as we show you all about your barefoot rights and living a barefoot lifestyle. And for more information about the 501c3 nonprofit Barefoot is Legal, please check out barefootislegal.org. Looking for something different? Looking for something fun? Join Dan every Monday. On the Freedomizer Network, 9 to 10.30 Pacific, noon to 1.30 Eastern. For Common Sense with the Educated Redneck, Dan Ellison. The show about everything and nothing at all.
We talk a lot about the kingdom here, and we talk a lot about what most churches are afraid to talk about or don't even know to talk about, which is what the first century church was really doing. But just talking about it is not enough. We encourage everybody to join us uh, in their local neighborhoods, in their local communities, to find out more about what they can do to seek the kingdom of God and His righteousness. Gather with others who are already starting this road or starting to turn around and do things differently. Join us on thelivingnetwork.org or at hisholychurch.org. Go to the network links or go to preparingyou.com. Join the network there. It's all the same. And we'll try to hook you up with people in your local area. They will not be perfect. They don't walk on water. They are not necessarily saints. But they are talking about seeking the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And join us on Facebook. Facebook.com, His Holy Church, all one word. Join us there. We'll give you updates so you can start doing some studying and thinking about these things and start looking into these things for yourselves. But it's just not enough to sit and listen or to talk about or to say. You must become a doer of the word. And if you are interested in taking another step toward restoring more of your rights and liberties, and you have a business or you have a ministry that you want to, you know, serve people through, please use go.livingwithfreedom.org backslash PMA. You'll get access to a 10-minute PMA intro. A PMA is a private membership association. You'll get access to a 10-minute introduction video. You'll also get access to my full 25-minute webinar. And then if this is the right fit for you, which is for a lot of people, please use my calendar link to get on my calendar and get a free consultation to see what type of PMA is the right fit for you and how we can make that happen for you. So again, the website is go.livingwithfreedom.com dot org backslash pma go dot living with freedom dot org backslash pma one last thing i want to share is one of the things that's not my digital calendar that keeps me on task is my paper planner and it took me for freaking ever to find a planner that i liked because when I get a planner, I need something that's big, something that's all-inclusive, something that has a daily breakdown, and somewhere that something that has notes for each day, too. That's where the Day Designer Planner comes in. I discovered this planner, I think, two years ago now, and it is my dream calendar just about. I tried even making my own calendar, you guys, but it would have cost me, like, 80 freaking dollars to try to print and it still does not come to as organized as this day designer is. So if you are interested, and I highly suggest the first thing you put in your calendar is our radio show here um, with the Living with Freedom show, Tuesdays at 2 p.m. Central. Yeah, shameless plug. I'm totally going to do it. <laughs> um, 
first thing I would put in your design, your day designer planner when you get it is our radio show here on Tuesdays at 2 p.m. So you can stay tuned, learn a little bit of history, learn how to take your rights back, and learn how to live with freedom. So to get a, let's see, I think it's a discount code. Let me look at my notes here. Uh, But to get a day designer planner, go to sharsl.com backslash 46 GWU. I also need to make a link for that one too. That's a little bit more user friendly. (laughs) But anyways, that's day designer. You can go to their website and starting September 14th, I have it marked in my planner. September 14th is when they're launching their 2024 calendar year calendar or planner. Right now they're selling their academic planners. So that's fall semester and spring semester. So from July to June. And because I go, you know, more from a calendar year now, um, I'm waiting a couple more days to get my calendar year planner. I highly recommend you do it. They have a lot of different patterns and a lot of different styles and sizes to choose from. So men and women alike, you should be able to find something that you like. Personally, I really like the cloth-covered ones. It's a little bit more like canvas material. And, yes, it's a little more plain, but it just feels so good. I don't know if you are a re- you know a reader and a book lover, but don't you just love the feeling of one of those really old, like, leather-bound books or cloth-covered hardback books or hardcover books? I just love holding something like that. So the fact that my planner is like that, Oof, I'm happy. I love it. (laughs) All right. So that is my last commercial of the day. Let's get back to our notes. All right. So some other interesting information about the September 5th First Continental Congress. These delegates, they were smart. They were wicked smart, you guys. Not wicked in a bad way, just like, amazingly smart. I should put it that way. They were amazingly smart. They did not just swarm Philadelphia on September 5th to start meeting or the day before to get ready for the meeting. No, they slowly started to trickle in in the days leading up to the first meeting and also kind of the days after too. So there was never this big swarm. And at the time, Philadelphia being a city of roughly 40,000 people, you know, a few people trickling in here and there, up to 56 delegates, that was not that big of a deal. People came and went throughout Philadelphia. It was becoming America's unofficial capital um, at the time because it was like the biggest city kind of centrally located amongst the colonies. And it was just a really ideal location because it was so you know, so busy, they could just stay undercover, stay a little more secret, easier. Um, Another fun fact is that there were delegates from 12 of the 13 colonies. Georgia was the only one that did not send a delegate, a delegate, but, and (laughs) Georgia did agree to back whatever decisions were made at the First Continental Congress. So, 
I did not see what happened that led Georgia to not send a delegate. But the fact that they did agree to still back whatever decisions were made at the First Continental Congress is still big. And so people who tried to poo-poo on Georgia for not sending a delegate, it's like, you know what? No, they didn't for whatever reason. But at least they said they would back the decisions. I mean, that's still, you know, that's still something. It's not nothing. Um, last real fun fact, even though none of this is probably fun for people who don't like to learn history, <laughs> is that um, the meeting was originally planned for Carpenter Hall, and then Delegate John Galloway also proposed using the the Pennsylvania, uh, you know, representative house for their meeting as well. So they went over there, and it was nice. But whether it was the fact that they didn't want him to have any leverage because he was like donating the use of his uh, they decided they voted pretty much unanimously to have it at Carpenter Hall and no one really complained uh, but I thought it was interesting that Carpenter Hall Carpenter's Hall I should say it correct location of the First Continental Congress and I do want to correct myself I know that I said the Continental Congress went from September 5th to October 22nd, and I'm seeing in my notes it actually went to October 26th, so even a little bit longer. So anyways, there were 56 men that attended, and by unanimous vote, Delegate Peyton Randolph from Georgia was voted to be the president of the Congress, so he was the presiding officer. And through all these... <clears throat> kind of like startup discussions, for lack of a better word, they went back and forth. The delegates all went back and forth about the idea of how many votes each del like each colony would get in terms of, you know, this Continental Congress. And it was Richard Henry Lee and I would be willing to bet this was seemingly first big action in the Continental Congress. He was the one to point out to the other delegates that the Congress could not reasonably or possibly count the worthy representation of each colony while they were in the meeting. And everyone agreed, so they voted that each colony would just get one vote regardless of population and regardless of property or size. And I thought that was pretty cool because there was a lot of discussion back and forth on how many votes each colony would get. <clears throat> and it was very wise that he came up with that solution. I'm not sure I would have. I would have been like, oh, my state or my colony is bigger. We should have a, a bigger say. But to make sure that even the smallest, like Rhode Island, had a voice, a real voice, it actually is more fair to make sure that each state only gets one vote. So I think that really set precedence for a lot of stuff coming down the pipeline in our history. All right, let me scroll back up. Uh, 
I thought it was also interesting. There was some discussion back and forth about who the Secretary of Congress would be. Um, Charles uh, Thompson had had nominated someone, and apparently the the delegate didn't really like his recommendation. Some had said because that person was like an active legislature or something. But anyways, an additional nomination got put out that, well, Charles Thompson, why don't you do it? So Charles Thompson became the Secretary of Congress, much to the um, disappointment in some ways of Galloway because Galloway knew that Thompson was definitely more on the Patriot side of things and Galloway was much more on the British side of things. There was definitely a varied opinion of people attending this First Continental Congress. Um, Some people wanted to just get our independence, take it, and run with it. And others wanted to peacefully regain the, you know, the, not loving, the relationship that the colonies had previously had with Britain for so many years. And they felt that, you know, we can get back to this. It's possible. Um, so I thought it was really fascinating that this large of a group of men from all the, from almost all the different colonies still managed to come into the same room, come together for 50, was it 52 days they met together. Now, some of them went home and, you know, never, never talked again kind of stuff, but it's, it's a powerful testament to integrity and morality to see people from such diverse opinions coming together for common cause. Um, Anyways, something else that was, uh, there's a lot of something else today. (laughs) As I was studying, I discovered that for such a monumental event as the First Continental Congress was, it's surprising then how little documentation was in terms of transcribing the actual events within within the meetings. Um, a lot of the documentation that exists either comes from Secretary Charles Thompson's notes, which some have found to be somewhat inaccurate, incomplete, and that could be because he was more on the Patriot side you know, he could have been a little bit more biased and um, opinionated in his in his um, in his note taking. <laughs> so, regardless, there's there's other resources too. I mean, the personal journals of the founding fathers and the framers who were there um, were also used. Uh, the journals and the letters that they wrote. Um, so yeah, there's a lot that goes into the creation of this whole picture of what was going on. They also used newspapers, not necessarily for the facts of what happened, but more to share the sentiment, the opinions and the feelings of what was going on at the time. Because unless you're actually living in a certain time, it's really difficult to understand what people were thinking and feeling. So that's where the newspapers kind of come in. Um, 
I also thought it was fascinating that most of the delegates were seasoned legislatures. So it kind of goes to show that by Parliament overstepping these uh, colonial legislatures, it was it was ticking them off quite a bit. They did not want to be ignored anymore. Um, I will admit, even though this group of men that came together for this, they were brilliant. They were geniuses of their time. But something that was kind of interesting was that they were still human. They still succumbed to falling for rumors, falling for like name calling or, or giving unflattering comments about each other and, and some selfishness. So even, even though they were still coming for noble causes, they are still human too. And I thought that's kind of funny. Um, Cause who isn't, you know, who isn't going to make a snide comment a side comment, um, just to release some frustration. Um, a couple quotes that I want to really leave you guys with before we really wrap this whole thing up for the day. The first one is from John Adams. And he had made a comment about the delegates, that the delegates were a collection of the greatest men upon this continent in point of abilities, virtues, and fortunes. So he was really giving a huge compliment to the delegates. And when I see the word fortunes, I don't maybe, and I, will, I obviously cannot read John Adams's mind, but I feel like he could have been saying that, no, they weren't just a bunch of rich people. They worked hard. They knew what work ethic meant. Work ethic meant. Now, that doesn't necessarily they all were farmers or laborers working with their hands in the field, but they had built successful businesses. They, you know, had all of their, their farms, their plantations, and, yeah, some of them were in debt for majority of their lives, but they still, in terms of integrity, were highly, highly wealthy, you know, and, and especially when you think about what they tried to do in freeing the slaves and reducing slave trade right from the get-go, these guys really were a lot more virtuous than we ever give them credit for. I'll just I'll just leave it at that. Um, another comment by Caesar Rodney. He said that the Congress was, quote, the greatest assembly that ever was collected in America. He also said that the delegates from Massachusetts because a lot of people were, were worried that these Massachusetts delegates were kind of butthurt, you know, over, over being pooped on by the British. But no, he said that they were moderate men, especially, and I am adding that, he said they were moderate men when compared to Virginia, South Carolina, uh, South Carolina and Rhode Island. So imagine being the the Massachusetts delegates getting pooped on so hard by the British with the Boston Tea Party and the Boston um, harbors and ports being shut down and everything. Like it seemed like every time we turned around in the Boston Massacre, every time we turned around, Boston and Massachusetts as a whole was just really getting pooped on. That's going to be my word of the day, pooped on. <laughs> um Anyways, so imagine how hard it would have been for them 
after dealing with all of that for years, for decades, to still show up being moderate, being open-minded, not necessarily being the first ones to be like independence, like ride or die, you know. I just find it really, really telling of their level of integrity and and freedom and, and liberty oriented to come with an open mind, not just like for revenge. So those are kind of my notes for today. There were a few more that I probably should have hit on, but um, those were the main ones. If I if I touch on any more, we might go over. I think the only one I do want to touch on, um, Patrick Henry was notable. We were pretty familiar with his name. Back when I had mentioned the Stamp Act and how the Prime Minister Grenville wanted to impose that direct tax, Patrick Henry was really the first resistor and the person, the first person speaking out against the Stamp Act. Um, and he gave his first ever like major speech before the Virginia House, uh, May 25th, 1765. So again, like a full decade just about before this first Continental Congress. And he was speaking even when the listeners were shouting treason at him. But he offered resolutions against England saying that um, the House in Virginia had the sole exclusive right to power to uh, levy taxes. Um, I also thought it was interesting that he argued that the Stamp Act would actually eliminate British and American freedom. So it's one of those like, hmm, what did he know that Parliament obviously didn't consider? (laughs) So I I think these founding fathers and framers, from Patrick Henry to James Otis, Crispus Attucks, they were some really awesome dudes who did some truly monumental things. And the least we can do is remember their names. And remember what they did for our country. Um, Yeah, that's just kind of an inspiring thing for me. So looking at the calendar, I want to, over the next couple months, like I said at the beginning of the show, if you missed it, um, over the next few months of shows, I want to dedicate one one segment of the show to continuing the discussion on what the um, what the delegates at this first Continental Congress were doing over the weeks, um, this book that I was reading, they actually break it down week by week by week, and so what I'm hoping to do is give a really brief overview of what the topics of discussion and decisions were, you know, as as we go through each week over the next two months. So stay tuned for that. Um, Also note that September 19th is third Tuesday PMA. So if you're specifically tuning in for PMA information, definitely tune in on the 19th. I will also be dedicating at least one segment, if not like a segment and a half, for PMA-related things. And I'm also going going to go into episodes because I think I have um, a couple already scheduled with some topics, but I don't remember what they were. 
if this wants to load for me. All right, let's go to upcoming order by date. All right, so that's today. Um, let's see, next week I am looking to talk about George Mason. So on September 12th in 1787, he who is one of our lesser-known founding fathers, suggested adding the Bill of Rights. And at the time, he was defeated. But I want to talk about him a little bit and what his intentions were when he was recommending this Bill of Rights. So that's going to be next week, as well as a continuation of the First Continental Congress. And we will keep going with what we're doing Remember that the Living with Freedom show is every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Central, noon Pacific time. If you have not caught any of our previous shows, a little bit about who I am and why I'm here. I am Amber S. I am the director of Living with Freedom Ministries. I am super passionate about being a medical freedom advocate and really just helping people live their best lives with freedom being the the main point. You know, they get to live how they want to live without having to ask permission. Life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness did not come with a government permission slip called a business license. Um, And that's something that we need to put back in the forefront of our minds, that we do not answer to the government, the government answers to us. I'm also a mother, a natural health care provider. I'm a homeschool advocate. And through all of these different things, I was really forced to dive in and learn about the real protections available to us within the private domain. So then after learning a lot of the things that are not commonly taught in our society anymore because of our government schools, I mean public schools, I knew that the only choice I had to learn or the only choice I had was to learn really as much as I could so I could, first of all, know what my rights were, and second, learn how to defend them, take them back and defend them. So now that I am on that path and journey myself, it's really my my obligation, obligation and my duty to now turn around and start helping others. And that's one of the things that I wish I could instill in people is you don't have to have everything perfect. You don't have to have everything figured out before you start helping others, before you start, you know, sharing truth. You can know just one more bit of truth, be one more step along the path than somebody else and still be able to turn and hold your hand out to them and help them along. And that's what this is really all about is, collectively sharing the truths that we know, and I mean truths with a capital T, you know, using God as our witness kind of thing, but using that truth with a capital T and sharing it with others. Because as one of my mentors, Stacey Hall, recommended or uh, taught me about, not recommended, taught me, is the things that we go through, they're not about us. They're about what we can learn to then help others. And when you really grasp that, it's so empowering. It depersonalizes the attacks that we sometimes go through 
and experience and realize these attacks aren't about us, especially knowing God is with us. They're really about what we're going to learn to then help others so we can fulfill our God-given purpose. So remember that as you're going through challenges, like don't look at it as a personal attack anymore. Look at it as a challenge. Look at it as I know I can overcome this because God's with me. God's holding my hand. What can I now learn from this experience to help someone not have to go through it? Or if, if they're going through it, how they can get through it maybe a little bit easier. So that's, that's really my advice for you today is as you continue to learn the Constitution and learn your freedoms and your liberties, learning about the Founding Fathers and the Framers and the Founding Mothers, I should not exclude them either, because um, they were instrumental as, as the colonists were boycotting. I'm going to add one, one more fun tip. As the colonists were boycotting British goods, the Society of Patriotic Ladies, I think is what it was called, they absolutely were an integral part in planning the boycotts of the British tea. And I'm like, how stinking cool is that? Is that these ladies participate in that? Yeah, it's a society of patriotic ladies. And yep, they were definitely helpful in boycotting British tea. So do not forget about our founding women too. Anyways, I think we've got just a couple seconds left here. This is Amber S. signing off from the Living with Freedom show. And I hope to hear you guys tuning in next week. All right. If my computer doesn't glitch out, here we go. All right. Have a great week, guys. We'll talk to you guys soon. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.